listening to a sermon from Hebron Baptist Church, a church in the northern Kentucky Cincinnati area that's committed to making disciples who make disciples. We want our love for God to be evident in our lives and for the Word of God to bear fruit as we go on mission across the street and around the globe. We hope after hearing this message, you'll connect with us on our website at hebronbaptist.org and visit our campus, not far from I-275 in Hebron, some Sunday morning. And now, here's a message from God's perfect, life-changing Word. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to take a Bible with me and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Is anyone else a little sad that Christmas is over now? Some people are like, they were ready. But for us, especially with where we are in life, our kids, it was a lot of fun. And I'm a little sad to see the tree going down and the lights going down. So this morning, we're going to think about how we can live life in light of Christmas all year round. So I'm going to read now in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. This is Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would call us, that you would enable us to live out the adventure that results from Christmas every day of the year. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite seasons in life was when Heather and I were first married. I met Heather at a college Bible study, and we started hanging out together. We had mutual friends, and we started to realize we like each other, so we got married. And it was so awesome. Our wedding day was so awesome. We had so many friends and family there. It was so memorable. And uh, we moved in after that to this little apartment, the first place we lived. And I had my first, like, big boy job. And life was good. We had free time. I remember coming home from work. She had made dinner. And it was so fun. We'd stay up late sometimes and sleep in the next day. We'd be spontaneous, hang out with friends, go get food. It was a great time in life. But everything changed about three years after we got married. Asher was born. It was awesome. It was, I was so excited when we learned that Heather was expecting and that we were going to have a little boy and the whole delivery pregnancy process, being at the hospital. Heather was so amazing. And I remember seeing little Asher for the first time, this little new human life. He's so amazing. And it was up to me and Heather to take care of this little person. How are we going to do this? I remember taking him home, and our family supported us, and so many of you came and gave us meals, and I'm so grateful for that. But in time, everyone went home, and it was just time for Heather and I to take care of this little person. I remember for the first time putting him in his crib and realizing, closing the door, we have another human being in this family now. We have to take care of. Life would never be the same. Life was awesome. It was so great, but it would never be the same. When Jesus was born into the world, the world is never the same. It can never be the same now that Jesus has come. 
Once again, we've just wrapped up another celebration of Christmas where we think about the birth of Jesus and we're, we're taking down the tree and we're throwing away the wrapping paper. It was a great time. The memories, the holiday memories of Jesus being born are going away, but we can never let the reality of Christmas leave us. We have to live in light of it all year round. It's too great. We can't just forget about it and only remember it once a year. So how do we do that? How do we live every day, all of 2020, in the light of Christmas? This morning, I hope to answer that question with you by diving into Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is such a cool chapter. I didn't even realize how cool it is. Because Matthew, I think it's misunderstood. It has been by me. Matthew, unlike Luke, so Matthew and Luke are the two Gospels that give us these really cool narratives about when Jesus was born. Luke is, I think, a little more familiar, at least to me. That's the one where the shepherds come and Jesus is in a manger. But Matthew, some of what he depicts happens after Jesus is born. For example, when the wise men come and meet Jesus, it's been up to two years after Jesus was born. So unlike how we see a lot of manger scenes depicting the wise men coming at Jesus' birth, that's not the case. In fact, when the wise men come, Jesus, he's no longer in a manger. Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they're still in Bethlehem, but they've moved to a house. The, 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 the account we have in Matthew 2 shows us that life after the first Christmas was crazy. This little boy has been born. Uh, Jesus, he's, he's toddling around, he's walking, his first words are coming out. Meanwhile, Herod is trying to kill him. These strange men from the east are bowing down before him, giving them gifts, and all the while... People all around him have no idea that he's anyone special. Life after the first Christmas was crazy. Our lives, many of us, are about to become crazy. Many of us have been able to enjoy a holiday break. Maybe we were off for Christmas, but we're about to get back into the real world. It's going to be crazy. So how do we, as we get back into life in 2020, live in light of Christmas? Let's jump into Matthew chapter 2, and I hope through this that we can learn three ways that we can live life according to to Christmas, in light of Christmas, the first way to live our lives in light of Christmas, we must surrender to the true king of the Jews. To live in light of Christmas, we must surrender to the true king of the Jews. Let's read the first eight verses in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So Matthew explains to us that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the, the Great. Who is Herod? Herod was born in 73 B.C., and he was king of the Jews under Roman authority from 37 B.C. until he died, which has usually been dated around 4 B.C. Herod the Great, that the great title, comes from him leading several building projects, including rebuilding the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. This guy was intense. If you know anything about him, he was a harsh 
ruler. Here's a quote from Mark L. Strauss, helpful, helping us know a little bit about Herod. Strauss says, Herod was a strange mix of a clever and efficient ruler and a cruel tyrant. On the one hand, he was distrustful, jealous, and brutal, ruthlessly crushing any potential opposition. Because he was an Edomitan, the Jews never accepted him as their legitimate king, a rejection that infuriated him. Having usurped the Hasmonean rulers, he constantly feared conspiracy. To legitimize his claim to the throne, he divorced his wife Doris and married the Hasmonean princess Miriam, later executing her when he suspected she was plotting against him. Three of his sons, another wife, and his mother-in-law met the same fate when they too were suspected of conspiracy. The Roman emperor Augustus once said he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Herod, trying to be a legitimate Jew, would not eat pork, but freely murdered his sons. Wow, what a guy. So we see Herod, he wanted to be accepted as king of the Jews, but he wasn't. That made him angry, and he would eliminate any potential threat that came in his way. So it's interesting, during his reign, these mysterious men from the east come to Jerusalem, capital of, the, of Judea and the Jews, and they start saying, we're here looking for the newborn king of the Jews. So Herod hears this, and he gets disturbed. You can see this in the text, in Matthew, the, the way that Matthew used the word king. Look at the, the, the very beginning of the chapter. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. Okay, so Herod's the king, according to Matthew. These wise men come. Verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. So there's this conflict. Who's the king? Who's the true king of the Jews? And this is going to be a problem that's going to unfold in this chapter. So what's Herod do? He brings together experts in the Hebrew Bible. And he says, experts, tell me, where is the Messiah, the Christ, supposed to be born? See, the Hebrew Bible had been written hundreds of years before Jesus and it has prophecies in it, prophecies that foretold of a coming king, a coming Christ who was going to be born. And in one of those prophecies, in this prophet named Micah, who lived 700 years before Jesus, it explains that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, or that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. So Matthew records this. In verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Just a little side note, Matthew is so interesting. The author of this gospel, he was a Jew, and it seems that he has this interest in reaching out to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And the way he writes, he has a particular Jewish orientation. He wants his readers to see that the Messiah spoken of in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is fulfilled by Jesus. So multiple times he'll explain that what was written in the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus. This is just one of these. We'll come to several more in this very chapter. So, what's Herod do? He learns that the, the Christ was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. These wise men have come asking where he's supposed to be born. So he says, go to Bethlehem. It's a six-mile journey that they would take from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They go. But before they leave, Herod says, when you find him, come tell me so I can worship him too. Of course, Herod doesn't really want to worship him. He wants to use them so that he can terminate this potential threat. So the wise men go. They go to Bethlehem. And they find him there. But they don't go back to Herod. In a dream, God tells them not to return. So Herod, he gets angry. 
Look at verse 16. Look how this unfolds. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. I mean, this sounds just like what we know from him historically. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. That number, that's how we know that Jesus, he could have been up to two years old by this time. In keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through, the, through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. So Herod's murder of these baby boys fits perfectly with what we know of his paranoia, of his reaction to threat to his, to his throne. And at the same time, we can see behind all these events, this is not just a human battle going on. There's a cosmic battle going on. Jesus was God's like secret weapon into this world to save us, and Satan doesn't want that to happen. Satan wants to eliminate this way of salvation, but we can see here God is protecting his perfect chosen son. It may be that there was about 20 or so babies killed when Herod sent for that to happen. Bethlehem didn't have a large population at this time, but every single one of those babies was fearfully and wonderfully made. Born to parents who had dreams of those little babies. I wonder if, if they were envious of Joseph and Mary, if they realized that Joseph and Mary would, would not have to undergo that, that Jesus wouldn't be killed, that they would get to, to flee. But maybe they wouldn't be if they realized that Mary one day would witness her own son dying on the cross for our sins. I love how the Bible doesn't hold back from real pain. It just addresses it straight up. Matthew, when he's talking about this account, he quotes this Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And it's so fascinating because the people reading this gospel, they would have understood the context of these Old Testament quotations. If you're ever reading in the Bible and you see a quote from an Old Testament book, go check out that Old Testament book because often authors don't just have in mind that little snippet that they give you. It's the whole context that they have in mind. So Jeremiah, he lived in Old Testament times about 700 years or so before Jesus in the days of an exile when God's people were, they, they had sinned against God. God sent judgment, so it was just of God to do this, but God allowed foreign nations to come and take captive God's people to foreign nations. It was a really horrible, sad time. But what's so interesting about this passage in Jeremiah is if you look at the broader context, you see this is actually a passage of hope. What God is saying in the context is, despite the fact that Israel has sinned and that they're being judged, God will bring restoration. Look at this in context. I think it'll be up here. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. This is where the original uh, context is. I'll read some verses before and after what Matthew quotes. Then the young women will rejoice with dancing, while young and old men rejoice together. I will turn their mourning into joy, give them consolation, and bring happiness out of grief. I will refresh priests with an abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness. This is the Lord's declaration. And then right in the middle of this joyful thing, we hear this is the verse that Matthew quotes. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, now, Rachel, she was one of the wives of Israel. She's like a matriarch to some of the Israelite tribes. So her, she's kind of being used as symbolism for the mourning parents of, of these children. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. 
but then is joyful again in Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the reward of your work, of your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return to their own territory. So if you were a Jew in Matthew's day, and you're reading this account in Matthew 2, and you read about all these boys who were slaughtered, and Herod, and his, his, his pride, and what he's done, what would your mind be going to? Well, you'd be realizing, this is horrible. This is a lamentful thing, but there's actually hope. Jeremiah talked about this hope, but it's so much bigger than hope, just hope that God would return his people from an exile, a physical hope. Because in Jeremiah 31, this very chapter that we just read from later on, that's where we read of this new covenant. If you know any verse in Jeremiah, it might be Jeremiah 31, 31, where God promises one day there would be a new covenant, not like the old one, a new one where God would write on our hearts, a new covenant that Jesus spoke of later in his life, in the Last Supper before he died, a new covenant that would be in his blood and would provide forgiveness of sins. So the hope that God offers is so much more than any hope that this world can provide. Herod was great. He could do a lot of military things that were impressive. But he couldn't save our souls. He couldn't give us a new heart. And that's what King Jesus offers. Herod had his reign for a time. And Satan will have his reign for a time. But Jesus is the true king who will reign forever. So I ask you and I ask me, what or who have we surrendered our allegiance to? What do we find our hope in? Is it Jesus? He's the true king. Have we surrendered all to him, not just on Christmas, but every day of the year, all year long, all of me, all for him? Jesus, unlike Herod, he's such a great king. He's like a shepherd. He comes from humble origins, Bethlehem, and he can provide for our deepest needs, our deepest healings at the heart level. So I invite you to take your bulletin on the back there's going to be three points this morning, and after each one, there's a little line that says 2020 goal. And my hope is that we can walk out of here with a goal for this year, for 2020. If you don't have a bulletin, you can just pull out your phone and type yourself a text message. But the idea is we'll walk out with three 2020 goals. The first one, this is just for you, you and God. The first goal, the question to answer is, what do I need to surrender to King Jesus in 2020? What do I need to surrender more of to King Jesus in 2020? Maybe you've never given yourself to Jesus. You've never become a disciple of his. If that's you, I invite you to do that this year. He is so worth it. What is it in your life that you don't find joy in? Maybe that's an area that you need to surrender to Jesus this year. Is there a grudge, a pain? Maybe you identify with those parents who lost their babies. There's a brokenness that only Jesus can heal. Maybe that's what you need to surrender to Jesus this year. Maybe there's a sin that you've re repented of in the past, but you haven't really accepted Jesus' forgiveness. Surrender that this year. Whatever it is, take a moment. I'm going to be quiet. Meditate, pray to God, and write down something for you and God. What do I need to surrender more of to Jesus in 2020? So, to live in light of Christmas, one, first, 
we must surrender to the true king of the Jews. We must surrender to the true king of the Jews. But then once we've done that, once we've given ourselves to God, to Jesus, what's that look like in our lives? What's our mission? What are we doing with our lives? That leads us to our second point. To live in light of Christmas, we must await the glorious king of the nations. To live in light of Christmas, we must await the glorious king of the nations. Let's keep reading Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 9. After hearing the king... They went on their way. This is in reference to the wise men. Herod told them to go to Bethlehem, look for this this king, so they go. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned, their own, they returned to their own country by another route. So we've already been talking about these wise men. Who were these guys? Where did they come from? What was the star they were following? I've always wondered these questions. Let's try to answer some of these things. Okay, one at a time, who were these wise men? Or in Greek, they're called magi. D.A. Carson gives a helpful quote. He says, The Magi are not easily identified with precision. Several centuries earlier, the term was used for a priestly caste of Medes who enjoyed special power to interpret dreams. Daniel refers to Magoi in the Babylonian Empire. In later centuries, down to New Testament times, the term loosely covered a wide variety of men interested in dreams, astrology, magic, books thought to contain mysterious references to the future and the like. Some magi honestly inquired after the truth. Many were rogues and charlatans. Apparently these men came to Bethlehem spurred on by astrological calculations, but they'd probably built up their expectation of a kingly figure by working through assorted Jewish books. These men, they possibly came from Babylon or Persia or the Arabian desert, And they were spurred to seek this new king of the Jews by a star. Okay, so what was this star? There have been many attempts, I've been reading about some of these, to identify this star astronomically. Um, And there's a lot of effort that's been put into that. However, it might be most likely that the star was a supernatural, miraculous creation of God. Whatever the case, Matthew just isn't interested in giving us all these details of the nature of the star. However, he might be alluding to an Old Testament passage in including this information that his Jewish readers would have connected with, would have understood. In the Old Testament, Book of Numbers, this is so cool. There was this pagan seer guy, Balaam. Fascinating, strange guy. Uh, He spoke about 1,400 years before Christ. And these are some of his words. He said in the Book of Numbers, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. Those symbols, a star and a scepter, their symbolism for kingship. And this oracle over time, it had come to be known as an expectation for a coming king. And now that king had come. And these wise men had come. They find Jesus no longer in a manger, but in his mother's house. They fall down and worship before him. And how much do they understand? Do they know that this was God in the flesh? We don't know. We don't know what they understood. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In the ancient East, it was important to bring gifts to a superior. Now think about Jesus. If he's like between one and two years old, how would he have reacted? What was this moment really like? Our youngest son, Ezra, he's one and a half right now. And if 
men came into our house with presents for him, he would not just sit there quietly. He would either be crying because he was scared, or he'd be like opening them up because he was so happy. Like this moment was probably not as somber as we usually think about it. Here is Jesus. He might be babbling. Who knows what it was like? Why does Matthew record this for us? This is so, so cool. Don't miss this. I almost have. Think about it. Herod and the Jews, they hear about this king. He's been born, but they're apathetic toward it. They're the ones who have the Jewish heritage. They're the ones who have the Hebrew scriptures to tell them where he's born. They know he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Herod is seeking to kill him. But on the other hand, these pagan theologically questionable foreigners come from far away. They don't even know where Jesus is supposed to be born. They eagerly come and bow down before Jesus, offering their gifts to him. This is a great irony. And this is a theme that, that Matthew is setting up. He's foreshadowing. He's showing us that one day what's done here is going to be fulfilled in a much greater way. One day Gentiles will come from all nations and bow before this very king. And this was anticipated in the Old Testament. Isaiah looked forward to this day when the nations would bring their gifts into God's kingdom. Isaiah had said, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. And shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. This would have been in Matthew's Jewish readers. They see prophecies being fulfilled and there's more to come. Matthew starts his gospel showing these magi from afar coming, Gentiles to worship Jesus. But he ends his gospel quoting Jesus saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In the second to the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation, there's a description of the new Jerusalem. And it says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. The Holy Spirit has inspired Matthew to see that these men foreshadow something much greater when all the nations will come. People of every nation bowing down before Jesus. So what does this have to do with us today? We live in a similar place that the wise men did in their day. The wise men were careful and anticipated the coming of the Jewish king. And they got it right. And they went before him and they bowed before him. We know Jesus has come once and he's going to come once again. So we have an opportunity to live our lives awaiting that coming king. Not a passive awaiting, an active awaiting. This is what I mean. Last fall... Our, our youth group, we would play games out in the front lawn when it was warmer. We'd play sports. We'd play kickball. We'd play, what else we play? We'd play ultimate frisbee and kickball, for example. When I'm in the outfield, I'm like totally clueless about what's going on. I'm like picking the flowers and talking to people. Someone kicks a ball and I don't know what just happened and it hits me in the head and I totally miss it. I was not awaiting that very well. 
Other people, like Cody Cochran, for example, he knows exactly what's going to happen. If he's in the outfield waiting for someone to kick a ball, he's anticipating where this ball is going to go, who he needs to throw it to, what kind of kicker they are. He knows all this stuff. That's an example of waiting actively. That's how we need to live our lives, actively awaiting Jesus. Think about people who you know, who you would say their life, they're living for Jesus coming back. Their life looks like awaiting for Jesus. I think about people like Lottie Moon, this woman who lived years ago, had this burden to reach people in China with the gospel of Jesus. And she would write letters back to America saying, you got to come. you got to send help. We need help reaching people for Christ. Her life was lived awaiting Jesus' return. Is that our lives? Are we awaiting Jesus? We have an opportunity to be a part of God's unfolding story. We know how it's going to end. Jesus is going to come back, and we have a choice. Are we going to be like Herod and the Jews of his day who are apathetic, who just didn't really care, or, like, or at worst, they wanted to kill Jesus, God's son, or will we be like the wise men who wanted to give all they had to live a life that bowed down before him? So in 2020, this is your, your question here for here, your 2020 goal, how can we, how can we, in what area do I need to more actively await King Jesus in 2020? In what area do I need to more actively await King Jesus in 2020? Is there a place that God is leading you to serve here at Hebrew Baptist Church? Is he calling you to go on a mission trip? to share the gospel with those at the ends of the earth, to pray for a certain people group, to work in our food pantry. We have an amazing gift in America that God has brought the nations to us. We can share the gospel with a foreign people group by going to our next door neighbor. Is God calling you to be a part of our children's ministry or our youth ministry? Maybe God's calling you to mentor a youth or to mentor a college student. Are you being called to work in our seniors ministry? Where is God calling you to await him in 2020? So let's just take a moment of silence. This is for you and God. Go ahead and write in there, in what area do I need to more actively await King Jesus in 2020? Some of you, you might be exactly where God has planted you. You have been for years. Keep serving where you are. Keep awaiting him actively. So to live in light of Christmas, first we must surrender to the true king of the Jews. But what does that look like in our daily lives? How do we serve? Well, second, to live in light of Christmas, we await the glorious king of the nations. But how do we sustain that? I mean, how do we do that all year round until Christmas comes again? Third and finally, to live in light of Christmas, we must hide in the humble king of Nazareth. To live in light of Christmas, we must hide in the humble king of Nazareth. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. I'll start reading again in verse 13. We'll read now the rest of the chapter in two chunks, and we'll see that God sent Jesus and his family on a journey here. After they were gone, that is, after the wise men left visiting Jesus... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. 
So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. So you, if we can pull up a map, hopefully there's a map. You can see here on the right side of this map, there's a little red circle. That's where Bethlehem is. And then dropping down, headed towards the left along that red arrow, that's a possible route that Joseph and Mary and Jesus may have taken as they went to Egypt. They stayed in Egypt until Herod died, and God may have used the gifts that, God, uh, that the wise men brought um, to, to provide for their needs during their journey there. Now, just a little interesting historical background here. So they stayed in Egypt until Herod died. When Herod died, many people rejoiced. Uh, Strauss, again, he gives us some helpful information. He says, Herod died in 4 BC, probably from intestinal cancer. As a final act of vengeance against his contemptuous subjects, he rounded up leading Jews and commanded that at his death they should be executed. His reasoning was that if there was no mourning for his death, at least there would be mourning at his death. At Herod's death, the order was overruled and the prisoners were released. So there was much reason to rejoice when Herod died. After he died, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary returned. You can see the top red arrow, a route they may have taken as they came back towards Israel. And Matthew concludes this little section by giving us this quotation. It's very interesting. He says, So that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, that doesn't seem too confusing. Out of Egypt, I called my son. We might assume, okay, I assume the prophet Matthew quoted probably has a larger context that says something like, when the Messiah is born for a time, he'll be in Egypt, and then I will take him from Egypt. Out of Egypt, I'll call my son. But that's not what is said. Matthew's quoting this this Hebrew prophet named Hosea. Matthew's original audience would have been familiar with Hosea. And it's from Hosea chapter 11. And if we can pull up just a little bit of the context of what's said. So this is the context in which that quote is pulled. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And, here's the quote Matthew gets, Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them, they kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. So isn't this referring to Israel? Matthew, why did you quote this? Out of Egypt I called my son. That's a reference that Hosea is referring to Israel with. And it's not like Matthew even needed to include this. It doesn't necessarily add to the story, it would seem. And people have criticized Matthew, thinking, you don't even know what you're doing. You're quoting this out of context. So what was Matthew doing? I love this. This is so cool. When I first learned this, I think it's the coolest thing. I still do. So in this case, Matthew is not quoting this as predictive prophecy, like he did in Micah, where it said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's pretty simple. In this case, Matthew is using what's been called typological prophecy. So here's the idea. Typology is when an older author or an author, a previous author, usually in the Old Testament, will record an event that happens. And then a later author, often in the New Testament, will look back to that first event, see a similar corresponding event in their own day, and see a movement of God. God did this back then. He's doing something similar in a greater way now. So in this case, Matthew sees what Hosea recorded, that God brought Israel, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt through the Exodus. Israel was called God's son, and God had a mission for Israel. Well, now Matthew sees something similar but greater happening. God's greater son, Jesus, 
is coming out of Egypt, and God has a greater mission for this son, Jesus. Matthew does this again in a couple chapters later in Matthew 4, when he records Jesus being tempted and tested in the wilderness. He records how Jesus, he fasted for 40 days, which corresponds to when Israel in the Old Testament, when they were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And if you know the Old Testament, you'll remember that Israel, they failed multiple times as they were tested in the wilderness. But Jesus, every time he's tested in the wilderness, he succeeds. So what's the big deal here? Why does this matter? Jesus is walking in the footsteps of Israel. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. He's taking up the mission Israel had, but he is successful at it. He is totally invested in us. God didn't just see us as humanity from afar and say, I'll drop some salvation on you. He came totally in the flesh and is invested in us. He knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. And that's not all. You'll see this more as we finish out Matthew chapter 2. Let's look at the very end of Matthew chapter 2. The last few verses here, picking up in verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. That's the end of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew finishes his account of Jesus' infancy by giving us one more Old Testament prophecy. But here's the problem. That phrase, that he would be called a Nazarene, it's nowhere in the Old Testament. That last verse that we just read, uh, that, let's see here. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Matthew's referring to the Old Testament prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew, what are you doing? Why are you saying that this was in the prophets, but it was not quoted anywhere? It's not from the Old Testament. D.A. Carson gives us some help here. He says, Nazareth was a despised place. Even to other Galileans. Here Jesus grew up not as Jesus the Bethlehemite with its Davidic overtones, but as Jesus the Nazarene with all the approvium of the sneer. When Christians were referred to in Acts as the Nazarene sect, the expression was meant to hurt. First century Christian readers of Matthew who had tasted their share of scorn would have quickly caught Matthew's point. He's not saying that a particular Old Testament prophet foretold that the Messiah would live in Nazareth. He is saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised. The theme is repeatedly picked up by Matthew. In other words, Matthew gives us the substance of several Old Testament passages, not a direct quotation. You see, the Old Testament prophets, the Hebrew prophets, they thought of the Messiah who would come as one who would be despised. Isaiah foretold of this suffering servant. He said, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom, whom men hide their faces, we, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus is totally invested, totally invested in our brokenness. No one can go to him and say, you don't know what it's like, Jesus, to be the kid who has to sit all by themselves at a lunch table or who no one sits next to 
on the bus. We can never say, Jesus, you don't know what it's like. When God became flesh, he became totally invested in the fullness of our brokenness. Last fall, several months ago, I was a part of starting this college Bible study at Gateway College. And uh, we wanted to reach college students for Christ. So how do you do that? How do you start a college Bible study on a campus like that? So we made up these flyers. We uh, showed up at this um, activity fair, handed them out. We hung up flowers on the wall. We asked people in person. We had free food. We, we did a lot of this stuff. It's going to be really great. And our first meeting happened, and one person showed up for our Bible study. And I got to be honest, I was really thrilled, honestly, that one person came up. And I'm grateful God gave us that one person. But I was also a little bit discouraged. And I was like, God, how are we going to get more people to come? We want to share you. We, wanna, we want Jesus, we want you to encounter these students. How do we bring more people in? Everything changed when Lance Nelson got involved with us. You might know Lance. He's a member here. He's also a faculty member at Gateway. He started joining with our Bible study. He became our faculty sponsor. He's a teacher there. He's already invested in that school. He knows the students. He's in their lives. He teaches them. He's told me stories of the students he's poured into. And so he knew how to contact the students who were ready for this, who would trust him, who would come. So they started to come because Lance invited them. He knew the students who would invite other students. And this is still an ongoing story, so keep praying for us. But I think last semester we had uh, like eight students was our, our max um, student turnout. And it was because Lance was already invested. When Jesus came to earth, when God became flesh, he didn't come and hand out flyers and say, come up to my palace and I'll forgive you of your sins. He got totally invested. He went down to the bottom. He was known as a Nazarene. And he, he became so invested in our brokenness, he knows what it's like, and he identifies with our brokenness all the way to where it means that he would take it upon himself and he would go to the cross and he would die and he would shed his blood, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. He's identified with us to the extent that he would take our place. And God has poured out his wrath on the Son and allowed us to be free. We should be known as the Nazarenes and worse, but Jesus was on our behalf. So how do we respond? How should we respond to the fact that Jesus is so invested in us. Here's two ways, two quick ways. One, we must be invested in our ministry. So if you look on your card, look back to what you wrote for your 2020 goal on point number two, where you can be invested, what ministry, what activity you're going to be invested in as you await Jesus coming back. Now think about that and think, how can you be invested in that? I mean, deep. How can you be involved in that? Listen to this quote by John S. Dickerson. He says, God's love was not merely spoken or claimed from a distance or as a response. God proactively demonstrated his love in the very places where sinners hung out. He demonstrated his love to individuals in tangible and undeniable ways without compromising his own holiness. When we make hollow claims of love from a distance, those claims do more harm than good. God didn't wait for us to make our way to him. He sought us in the person of Jesus Christ. If we love any tribe in the vicinity where God plants us, we will go to them as Christ came to us. So as you think about the ministry that you're involved in in 2020, how can you go to them? 
How can you walk in their shoes? How can you not talk from afar but be invested like Jesus is in us? Maybe it means that you go and see someone where they are. You go visit a high school student at their school. You go to a a college where a college, college student does life. Wherever it is, you take the first step and go to them. But in the biggest sense, this is what it means that Jesus has been invested so much in us. It means that we have a great need. We can't be saved by God from afar. God has chosen to save us by being so invested in us. And our only response must be that we hide in Christ. That we hide in Him. How do we sustain our spiritual life? We have to come back to Jesus every single day. The one who is known as a Nazarene, who came so low, who took our sins in himself. Every day we must come back to the gospel. We can't graduate from the gospel. This is our source of life. So in 2020, how can you hide more deeply in Jesus, our King? Maybe for you it looks like creating a new routine, a devotion where you have on a daily basis, where we remind ourselves that we need Jesus, where we confess our sins to him. Maybe it's starting an accountability friendship with somebody where you are struggling with a sin and you guys can remind each other that we need to trust in Jesus, where you can bring your brokenness before Jesus. Whatever it is for you, go ahead and take a moment, pull out your bulletin one last time. We'll have one last moment to reflect on how can I more deeply hide in the Savior in 2020? That's the last line. Just between you and God, write down, how can I more deeply hide in the Savior in 2020. So, to live in light of Christmas, we must surrender to the true King of the Jews. And that's a call to service as we await this glorious king of the nations. And that service is sustained as we hide in this humble king of Nazareth. I started by telling you the story about when Asher was born. It meant change for Heather and I. But it was the greatest change, the greatest adventure, one of the greatest joys I could ever experience being a dad. And I love it every single day. We wrapped up another year of Christmas and it was great. But the greatest adventure of Christmas is a life lived in light of Jesus' birth. It's just beginning. So may we always live in light of Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for coming to our world. We thank you for being born. We thank you for being born so humbly. And what a gift it is, what a call it is, that we now get to follow you. So Lord, I pray that as we turn to 2020, that this upcoming year would be dedicated to living life in light of the fact that you lived life here, you died for us, and you offer us new life. God, would this year be a year that you're glorified in our lives and in this church? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Hebron Baptist Church. We pray as you have listened, the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart that you may faithfully follow him. Most importantly, we hope that you've been drawn into a relationship with God. At Hebron, we believe that the gospel is the central message of the Bible. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and died for our sins. 
but he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. The most appropriate response to hearing this good news is turning from sin and turning to Christ. Don't stay far from God. Instead, repent and believe in Christ and be brought into an intimate relationship with Him. If you would like more information about this life-changing decision, please contact us through our website at hebronbaptist.org or even better, come see us on a Sunday morning. May God bless you as you follow Him. (music) 